You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. We have a very special 100th episode tonight. I am your guest host, Peter McNerney, and today we are talking to the great, nay, the greatest, Louis Kornfeld. Louis, welcome to your own podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's nice to be here. Are you nervous to be on the other side of the table? Yes, this is nerve-wracking. Well, I'm not nervous at all. Good. Good. So as you know, and listeners, you may know, uh, our new podcast format is quite simple. We're going to get to know Lewis. That's the body of this uh, show. And then later, we're going to do a couple of segments, a little get-to-know-you hotspot, and of course, a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles. I can't wait. It's maybe my favorite new thing in the whole world. Is that true, really? Honestly, I listened to Carly and Chris's episode recently on the train on two different days, and both monologues, I did that like embarrassing laugh-out-loud thing on the train where you laugh and then you try to like pretend like you're not it was very embarrassing i don't ever want to be looked at in public yeah how do you feel about being looked at in public i am against it i feel like this is where we connect (laughs) yeah yeah i don't enjoy uh attention very much it's uh it's like it, it obviously the the irony of doing what we do as people who, like, I don't want attention unless I'm in control of it. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like my barrier for being okay with then people looking at me is a little thinner than yours, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm curious. This is a total non sequitur. But uh, uh, seven-year-old Louis Kornfeld mm-hmm. is on the playground. Yes. What is he doing? Uh, at seven, I was probably... The first grade? Uh, yeah, seven Ish. for me. I well, I'm a December baby, so mm-hmm. I seven probably would have been second grade for me. I was four in kindergarten, uh, four to five, then five to six. So yeah, seven would have been the yeah. second second half of second grade for me. Yeah, um, I I would have been uh, hanging out with a couple of other boys behind a garbage dump, and that would have been our clubhouse. Not a garbage dump, a, gar- a dumpster. Yeah, behind a dumpster. What's the? I, I think. I can relate. I'm just remembering now. We had a, always it was a clubhouse. It was usually bushes. Yeah, and it's like okay, here's here's the clubhouse. This is the club. Yeah, I don't remember what the next step was. I don't think you did anything. I think you just existed apart from other people in your special private club. Was it just about creating labels and rules and feeling like a part of something? I think so. I I, I think um, I think part of it is like a kid's natural attraction to just like private spaces. You like yeah. you like having spaces that are kind of like outside the normal space. Yeah. I think that feels really exciting. And I, and I imagine like you don't nothing's yours when you you have your yeah. room, yeah, your room. But outside of that, uh, so I'm I'm curious what what was your first performance experience? Because you were a, a film guy, that was your thing. You went to school for that. Yes, but before that, what was the what was the very first public performance very first public performance uh was probably first grade we did a um we did a play called the magical pasta pot <laughs> based on the italian folk tale of Streganona, and i played luigi yeah which i remember being super excited about because that's my name 
So I, I felt oh, yeah. like, oh, it's my mom calls me Luigi to this day. Really? Yeah, because my mom's Italian. Oh. Or Italian American. Yeah. So my mom's name for me has always been Luigi. So yeah. uh, I, when I got the role of Luigi, I felt like perfect. This is it. Yeah. Was, this is the role I was born to play. Yeah. So I had, I, I was like the second, it was the girl who played Streganona, and then I played Luigi. Mm-hmm. And uh, I once I got my hands on the magic pasta pot, I could not stop eating the magic pasta. And then the play ended with the big reveal that now I have a large <laughs> tummy and I'm suffering from severe indigestion because of my greed for pasta. It's a tragic end. Hey, but he learned a lesson. We all learned something. Yeah. And honestly, after like three days, he'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, you're Italian. I don't know why that was shocking to me. Really? What What are you? What are your What are your parents? My mother is Italian. Yeah. Uh, she is half mainland and half Sicilian, um, American. You yeah. know, she was born in America. Um, and my father is uh, a, uh, a an Eastern European slash Russian mongrel of kind of wandering nineteenth uh, century Jew. Yeah. So how how long ago did both these families end up here? My dad, um, his, uh, both of his parents were born in America, but they would have been first generation. Yeah. Uh, his, his parents, older siblings were both born in the old country, yeah. which would be uh, Hungary, yeah. Hungary, Poland, somewhere in there. Yeah. And my mom's family goes back, um, about five generations. So they're in it. They're in it. In it to win it. Yes. What did, what did your parents do or do now uh, they're both retired now they were both nurses for a long time both um, of them yeah my mom was um my mom was an intensive care nurse for a long time when i was a kid and then she took over as head nurse in the emergency room at bailey seaton hospital on Staten island yeah and then she spent the last 10 or 15 years as a psychiatric nurse and she just recently retired in the last couple of months and then my dad, when I was growing up, he had a bunch of different jobs. He sold insurance for a hot minute, and um, he owned a, a Carvel franchise for a few years. And he was how a, old were you when your dad owned an ice cream store? That seems it's like a thing other kids get jealous about hearing. Yeah, yeah I guess so. I'm I, jealous hearing that now. It gets like tired, like you get tired of ice cream pretty I mean, quickly. I don't even like Carvel ice cream that much. No, it's a little sweet. It, it's, um, it's a little sweet. I, I was probably six or so when he bought it. Well, how did you feel about it when you were six? I was excited. I yeah. I, I remember um, going to visit it for the first time. It had just it had been like horribly flooded from the previous owner, so it was like a wreck. And I remember like walking through the wreckage of it and finding yeah. that really exciting. Um, oh, that's really funny. Yeah, because there's something really sad about a a broken down ice cream shop, but that was the part that you liked about it. Pure potential. Yeah. Let's see what we can do with this bad boy. If if ever there was a Lewis Cornfeld philosophy, <laughs> let's see what we can do with this bad boy. I guess so. Yeah. Um, but then it it my dad had my dad was a terrible business person. Yeah. And he had very exacting standards for quality. So he he there were there were like customers at his Carvel were very loyal to him because they got. He bought all like fresh ingredients for stuff to put on the ice cream. If you got cherries at his Carvel, you got like yeah. real cherries and stuff um and he kept his prices low and he kind of drove himself out of business by 
by by caring by caring and working too hard and having a bunch of teenagers steal from him and not really having the heart to like do much about it but he, he but is tra- he's a tragic hero just a terrible business person yeah. so then after that was done he went back to school he was a, he was a lab technician for a long time that was his main job for years like before he, the carvel before the carvel he he was a blood technician Wow. And uh, then after the Carvel, he went back to school and he got a nursing degree. And then he was a nurse. He was an emergency room nurse for 20 years or something. My mother-in-law is an IV nurse. Yeah. And uh, What is an IV nurse? She literally has a cart. She goes around the whole hospital and they say, we need to put it in an IV. Yeah. You know, there's so many people. They just, you get the, you, we need whatever. They put in the IV. It's a skill. To use whenever. Yeah, it you is got, you a have skill. to be good at I mean, it. She's been doing it for years and years, and she's a total pro. Yeah, but she just every once in a while, you know, it's a tough day, and then you actually hear the details, and you're like, "Oh, your job is far more stressful than my my teaching improv job that I'm stressed about." Right I, I I can never. It's hard for me to even imagine. Yeah. The the amount of work that these people put in. Yeah. And the kind of work that they put in and the number of asses that have to be wiped and the number of bed sores that need to be tended to and yeah. the number of pustules that need to be popped and, and just like horrifying. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I find it baffling that my parents were able to cope with anything. Did you? Ha- I found that I had this, you know, my dad was a venture capitalist, mm-hmm. which took me about 27 years to understand uh, but then I hit that point where I, I finally just really asked, like, how does this work? Take me. Actually, we had a really great bonding moment when I moved to New York and we were waiting for somebody at a bar for an hour. I think I taught, he explained venture capitalism for maybe an hour. And then I talked about improv for an hour. And that was the beginning of like, Oh, I, uh, why didn't I talk to you about this a long time ago? Did you have a moment like that? I'm sure you're a kid. You're like, you're a nurse. What was the moment where the tangible reality of what they do became real to you. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I always kind of knew because when when I was very little, my dad would work nights um, in doctor's offices doing uh, blood work for the doctors. Mm -hmm. So when I was like three, he would take me around and we'd like drive to Queens and I would like sit under the chairs in the waiting room while he was doing blood work in the lab. Yeah. And um, I had, I had, asthma when i was a kid so i was in the hospital a few times for like really nasty asthma attacks yeah and um so like i would be in the emergency room and i would see all my mom's friends and coworkers and stuff and and so i i kind of had like a sense of yeah. like what their grind was like for me it was more understanding my parents like social network yeah that to me was always so foreign like their job i kind of grasped because uh-huh. i could kind of see them in action yeah but understanding that they had like friends and relationships outside of the home, like seeing your teacher out of school. Yeah. It was a weird, I remember like having, I don't remember how old I was, but I remember having that thought of like, Oh, right there. They have a full rich life of which I am only a part. How dare you? It wasn't even that. It was just like, Oh, that's great. How exciting. There's so much more space out there than I imagine. A much more mature response. Yeah, I don't think I was ever like offended by that. I always kind of liked that idea of like, oh, there's so much more about you. Yeah. This is like a stupid way of... So here's my like Star Wars thing. (laughs) So like I'm a big fan of The Godfather. 
Yeah. And uh, I assume you've seen it? I have. Okay. So, so and then in Godfather Part 2, they, they see young Vito Corleone yeah. with some it's, of his friends from Godfather 1 as young men, yeah. right? But then there's also these other characters who weren't part of Godfather 1 who you find out or like, oh, these were major players in his life. Yeah. And I, I loved that as a kid that feeling of, oh, I feel like I know these characters, but then I'm learning that there's like major important parts of their story that I didn't have access to that are like there for me to find. I love that. This is a perfect, uh, teach level five and we're in the middle of expansion right now where the whole thing is, there's no absurdity in this. We really, here's the first beat of characters and that second beat is expanding the world. And what you're describing is exactly right, which is the, who do you bring in in that second Mm -hmm. beat? And it's the, oh, I didn't know about these people. Of course, it, it, it's giving me a fuller understanding of the person I knew before. But this new person, is that like, oh, my parents have friends? Well, of course they do. Yes. But it's opening up that world that's not directly stated or implied. But of course, something is there. What is there? Yes. Yeah. People will oftentimes um, play their second or third beats the same way George Lucas treats storyline in the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> they yeah. seem like afraid to allow space for there to be other stories that aren't part of this main story, but that, you know, mm-hmm. these characters are swept away in. It's just like repeating the same shit. Oh, I guess C-3PO has to be here because that's what we all remember. Yeah. Whereas like that makes no goddamn sense. It's like when you hear somebody tell you about somebody they know, you create this really specific picture in your head. Mm-hmm. But when you meet them, it's, everything you didn't expect that yes. makes them interesting. Yes, exactly. And, and a little off-putting at first, too. Yeah. You're, You're a like, little no, disappointed, no. and then you have to kind of learn to sort of fall in love with like the person that's in front of you right now. It's, uh, it's like when you, if you ever listen to some story that just the audio or like a radio play yeah. uh, or bands, musicians, you sure. get so intimately, uh, you get to know their voices, yeah. and then you see them. And it's that, no, that is not what's in my head. Even if I didn't actively take the time to think about what you look like, my brain did that for me. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's this adjustment. I mean, that's, but that's what's happening in improv, which is amazing. Is that an audi- a scene is going on. The, audience, the audience's brain fills everything in on what they're watching without yes. any active thought. And so when an improviser just adds a specific detail at all, it's just like, Oh man, I didn't know kids made adult shoes. We all laugh at details like that because it's changing a preconceived notion we didn't even know we had. Because mm-hmm. we saw a different kind of shoe or a different kind of specific, even if we weren't actively thinking. Yes. It. I, there's a, a blog that Bill Arnett great in blog. Chicago, great blog, and he talks about that as the collapsing state vectors. Mm. So it's collapsing state vectors. I use this this metaphor in class sometimes. If I if I sense that the class will allow me to use this metaphor, yeah. It, it uh, in quantum mechanics, a, a state vector is is um, a scenario. So like you know the the Schrodinger's cat thing is you put the cat in the box, you put a you put a uh, time delay poisonous capsule in the box, you close the box, mm. and then after a certain amount of time, without checking on the cat, there are now two state vectors. There's one state right. vector in which the cat is alive and there's one in which the cat is dead. And when you open the box and check, 
if the cat is now alive, you've collapsed the state vector. That's no longer a probability. That disappears, and what you remain with is reality. And so it's when you have people multiverse. on stage, exactly. Yeah. And, and, but all it takes, you get two people on stage making eye contact with each other, and immediately you have, I don't know, between five and 20 different state vectors. Yeah. It's that great thing where two people get up on stage and then you freeze it before they say a word and you ask everyone else in the class, okay, what yeah. does this feel like to you? Yeah. And you get, everyone has a different answer. And everybody's right. And everyone's right. Mm-hmm. And then with each new detail that's added, you're collapsing state vectors until what you remain with is this one certainty. And every time a state vector collapses in the audience's brain it's like watching like bubbles burst. Yeah. It might be this, but when that bubble bursts and then it now the thing that remains is a little bit more vivid in your imagination, a little bit more technicolor. Yeah. There's a moment where the improvisers get it right. They name a detail that verifies this thing that you sensed in your imagination and now you know we're in communion with each other. Yeah. And there's a moment where kind of collectively everybody in the room suddenly sees the same thing appear in their own imagination. Yeah. And that's the biggest laugh and and weirdest laugh you're going to get in that show it's a confident laugh yes i know what this is yes i love that idea that oh when we start this scene is everything mm-hmm. you take your first step on stage and oh, okay well we've collapsed to certain things that this physicality won't allow right and then every every detail you add every choice you make every reaction you have so long as it, there's consistency to it just simplifies, simplifies, mm-hmm. as opposed to there is nothing till you say the first thing, and now there is, hey, you want a basketball? Now there's a basketball and only a basketball yeah. is much more daunting than let's, narr- let's, let's chisel it out of the stone as opposed to put it on the canvas. Yeah. Yeah, I think of it as, as playing, playing from a point of view of abundance versus scarcity. Yeah. You can look at an empty stage as being already teeming with possibilities Mm -hmm. and you're kind of tuning into the wavelength that happens to be like actually there right now and letting that shape your imaginative feedback of it or you can look at it as an empty space that just needs to be filled with creative choices they're both fine ways of looking at it it's really up Mm -hmm. to you but one of them to me feels relatively stress-free and one of them feels horribly horribly stressful yeah yeah because being in an empty space makes you feel alone very much but so. But if you're in a crowded space, then it's that, oh, no one's looking at me because there's so much else going on. Well, I, how do you feel about this? Because I kind of feel like in my own best, when I'm feeling it, uh, um, I, I feel like I have kind of lost myself a little bit on stage. There's the, that, that critical self-conscious part. I, my best shows, I kind of feel like I'm not, I'm aware of myself as a performer. I'm aware that I'm like trying to get a reaction from the audience, yeah. but that's a very dim awareness kind of on the periphery of my mind. The best shows I kind of feel like you're in it. You're in it. I I find that I am best when I'm constantly distracted. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is my attention is here. Over here is my attention, which is what I, the improviser am actively considering thinking about mm-hmm. and over here is the character's attention what they are looking at what they are actively considering mm-hmm. and my number one goal is just to line those two things up so the thing i am actively focused on and thinking about is the exact same thing that the character is looking at or thinking about mm-hmm. so i have found a successful way into that by just v- getting ahead of my own brain because i try to be too clever 
And so I go in and it's just, what is this first thing I see? And I say it, and then I allow that to help me see the next thing and mm-hmm. the next thing. And then I'm in, that's why I think I very quickly go like, oh, gosh, oh, you know what? Oh, we're two dads and we're out, outside. That's the slip and slide. We must be neighbors, but friends, our kids are on there. I got a cooler full of beer, and uh, I've been unemployed for a few weeks. Like, each thing leads to the next thing, and I tend to do scenes that have a lot of info really quick mm-hmm. so that I'm completely lost and distracted by all of it so mm-hmm. I don't think about the improv. Very smart. So you're, tra- you're, you tra- you're trying to quickly close the gap between... Peter brain and character brain. Yeah. And you're like pulling those things together so that the moment that they overlap, now you're free to just be in the scene. Yeah. And that's, I think why I'm most successful with Nick, who I know just wants to be told what he is. Yeah. And so I'm, I completely let myself be selfish and like, Oh, you look like this. I look like this. Well, that means that we're this, that means that we're here. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily say all of that like that. I have gotten over time graceful at just giving you just enough to communicate the most mm-hmm. uh, so that I continue to feel and sound like a person. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me you are doing the same thing in that you completely trust what this feels like, what this looks like, but you enjoy the not knowing specifically yet. Uh, yes and no. Um, I took... I took two notes to heart from uh, from Dave Pesquese years ago that really kind of like sunk in there. Yeah. Uh, one of them was if uh, if uh, if you really know what you know, you don't need to put it into words because it's going to come out in your behavior. Yeah. And the other one was uh, be ambiguous if you can afford to be. Um, now everybody disagrees with that. I. I I, I struggle with that because I get it. And then I'm also don't teach that. Yeah. I, and I have mixed feelings about that too. Cause my, my I, I agree if I'm doing like a level two or level three class, I'm really not going to teach that because you want people to be, there's a certain amount of like obviousness and directness to how you're communicating with each other in a Herald. And, mm-hmm. and you definitely do have to do the work at the beginning to lay down your scenic elements and make sure that we're in agreement about what those things are. And then you move on to like the next phase of the scene, which is now that that work has been done, finding how we are actually, what the cause and effect is in our relationship. And then once we spot that, finding ways to feed it and heighten it and bring out more of that. So when you get to second and third beats, you know instantly what to go to and and you're kind of automatically heightening. Yeah. So you, you can't really afford to be ambiguous. You, but you, I will bring that out if for the right class or the right person, yeah. I will happily give that note because I think it's a great note. You know what? I think the, maybe this is splitting hairs, but the, the, the thing that is important is the, if you can be ambiguous as in, you don't have to tell us all these things, but all I look for as a teacher these days is the, I'm looking at your face and I can tell what you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. And if it's not what the character should be thinking about, Mm -hmm. then it's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Obviously that's going to happen a certain amount and that needs to be forgivable. But that pure place, if I'm sitting here, and I'm not saying anything, and I'm not spitting out context, I should always know, though, what I'm looking at or where my brain is. Exactly. And so if you're, that's why if someone's doing an activity and you come in and you don't know what it is and you look at it, you've just told us that you're wondering what this is. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, you don't need to label it for us, but you need to decide in your brain what that looks like. Absolutely. 
And if it gets labeled as something else, great. But at least you haven't shown us the, oh God, what is that face? Well, that's what I like so much about that note is be ambiguous if you can afford to. Yeah. And, and so it, I think it, that is the, that's the, the important point. Yeah. It takes a lot of judgment to recognize, is this a kind of situation where I can afford this or not? Yeah. I'm not going to do a mixer scene with, with someone who it's their second improv scene ever and get up there yeah. and choose to be ambiguous. I'm going to yeah. be very direct and I'm going to tell them what's going on and I'm going to play yeah. hard. And you're going to yes and the crap out of anything they tell you. Yeah. yeah. But if I'm playing with someone who I trust and love and, and I know trusts me, um, yeah, I love that stuff. I, I, I love... I, I love it as an audience member when someone respects you enough to kind of let the show just happen at its own pace and, yeah. and let it reveal itself. And I love it as an improviser when I don't feel the panicky performance part of me that kicks in and is like, I better make this funny right now. I haven't yeah. gotten a laugh, so I got to make this funny. So I'm going to do, because whenever you do your funny thing in that situation, it's always last night's funny. Yeah. It's always leftovers that you're taking out of the fridge. It's that voice that I always do it's that observation yeah. that I always make. It's that dry irony that I always do. And, and as soon as you say it, you feel like uh, there's not enough air in these tires. It's also, when you're not fully engaged and you're like, I just need to throw a thing out there. Whatever you say, that's the limits of what you've added. Yes. It's the, oh, I have lunch. That's it. Yeah. But when you're actually there and your brain is treating this as a lunch you really would, then you say... Well, I brought lunch. It immediately implies a whole bunch of stuff you maybe didn't intend, which yeah. is the, oh, okay, this is a kid who uh, can't afford the hot lunch, brings his own. Like, oh, there's these implications to it. Whereas if you're not engaged, whatever you say, that's all you're bringing. I like, um, I don't name characters often in shows. Uh, um, but when I do, I will almost always use names of people from my past. Because otherwise you're using your invention brain. Yes. And I also don't feel like I don't entirely agree with the note of like just name people. Oh, yeah. Because it's like, well, if I name you John, that's just as good as not having you named anything it's at not, all. It's, a fake it's not name. attached to anything. Exactly. So, like, I like it when you attach it to stuff. So, this way, you know, the second I call you um, uh, Mr. Montag, yeah. now my entire imagination the part of me that doesn't really know the difference between pretend and not pretend yeah. is now there with me. And I can rely on that to feed me. All these different channels are now operating. I'll do that or give it a weird name where I'm like, Hey tank. That's also good because like, it, you remember it, tank. Yes. It's memorable and it, and it makes you feel Gives you a picture. It does. And it makes you feel like, Oh, this is fun. It puts you in yeah. a fun state of mind. If I say John, my view of you has not been altered. Yes. I might as well I say call Co you Cooper. Yes. Yeah. Cooper's great. John is... Sorry to all the Johns out there. Sorry. And if I do call you John on a show, I'm thinking of a really specific John. Yeah. Um, but like if I'm not thinking of a specific John, John I, I might as well... John, right now? John, who I'm, are you I'm not going to say. But Ooh, I, I, there we're is, all wondering now. Yes. Leave Everyone it to go your to the Magnet Facebook, not Facebook, but go to the Magnet page, go, go to the Performer page, look for all the Johns. John may or may not be there. He may or may not be there. That's all. He might be somewhere else. But that, that's like really useful, knowing who, being able to relate the other person's character to someone who I knew in real life yeah, is also, I, I mean, and I guess that's just like. Because it makes you feel something. It makes you feel something. And it, it makes, 
the, the, the quality of your voice. I can hear when my voice is, is a performance voice. Yeah. And I can hear when my voice is I'm talking to this character who's a surrogate of someone who I've experienced in real life. Yeah. And, and to me, that makes all the difference in the world. My behavior follows accordingly if I believe the sound of my own voice. And then I don't have to think about my behavior. Yeah. It just kind of... Because you're not thinking about your behavior. That's exactly. the other thing. I see a lot of people walk on stage. Um, I've been saying this a lot for the past week. But where is your attention? When you step on stage, are you giving your attention to your scene partner? Yeah. Which they might not be asking for. Or is your attention available? Yeah. And likewise, on the other end, are you paying attention to yourself and your body? In which case, why? People don't do that. Yes. So it's that in between. The, I'm going to join your scene and my attention is available. Uh, I see you, but I'm not going to stare at you. I'm going to look at my hands until you... And then if you go, it's cold, that's not demanding my attention. Mm-hmm. But I'll respond to you. But if you go, where the hell were you? That's asking for my attention. Mm-hmm. But if I'm giving you my attention, now you have to explain why. And that's, that might be hard. It's a hard thing to communicate because you, you got to have that balance of like, uh, um, holding on firmly and also very lightly. Yeah. And that's that's how you're playing with character choices, but it's also how you're playing when you're just giving your attention. Y- you want your attention to be available and ready and 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 um, uh, 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 able to flow where the scene needs it to flow. So you got to yeah. be concentrated. Yeah. But you also have to be light and light open touch. with it too. Very much so. Yeah. So, like, sometimes I'll think of it as, like, it's like, you know, you and your partner are, like, playing the Ouija board together. Mm-hmm. It's like both of your hands have to be on this thing. Yeah. But neither of you can be pressing it down, but also neither of you can be cowards and barely touching it. You yeah. got it. It's got to be firm enough that contact is there, but light enough that you're movement's possible. You're not pushing. You're not pulling. Exactly. And, and even when you're quiet on stage, that kind of has to be where you're yeah. at. You have to be prepared to let the flow of the scene kind of move you forward. Cool. I want to jump back into the timeline, Lewis. Yeah. I met you uh, very early in Magnet history. Yeah. I think I moved here a few weeks after it opened. Didn't mm-hmm. know about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I came and saw probably Tiny Spectacular. You were probably house managing. Very likely, yeah. I don't remember the first time uh, seeing you, but I, we were, I saw you in Megawatt probably at the very beginning and we're in classes together. So I, I've known you for a very long time. Yeah. But I'm always curious to hear about that just before that time. Mm-hmm. So let's go to you are UCB was the first like long form that you saw. Yes. Take me to that show. What is that show? Why are you there? What happened to you during uh, it? It was a naked baby show at the old UCB theater. And uh, it was just three of them. It was Rob Cordry and Brian Husky and Seth Morris. And they did a Harold. Yeah. And I didn't know what a Harold was. And I didn't... I remember Was being, it explained in the show at all? No. Or was it like an improv show? Or it, was an impro- it was an improv show. We're doing a Harold. Can we get a suggestion? Yeah. So I couldn't follow it for a while. Um, Are you busy looking for the suggestion? No. I... Now or then, you mean? Then. No. I've, no, I was quiet and didn't volunteer. I don't, I'm not. I don't. No, no. I mean, I find a lot of people when they watch. Oh, improv, you the mean first time, looking, seeking the suggestion in the, in the show? audience? You're like, how are they? What's going on? Pro- probably I was. Yeah. I don't really remember, but I, I do remember like a moment where the show came together and I got what they were doing, and I was like, oh. And, and for me, it wasn't. It was this thing of, 
I, I remember the night before I'd gone to see a play with Megan. Yeah. It was awful, awful, <laughs> terrible play about 9-11. <laughs> was, was John in it? John may have been in it. Oh, wow. That's hints, people. It's a hint. Um, no, it was this horrible, horrible thing where um, this part was actually really funny. It, it opens with this guy who's playing the role of like, a, a, like a, an artist yeah. who's like struggling and like the whole beginning of the play is like Picasso had his Guernica. <laughs> How do I come to terms with the events of 9-11? And this oh. is like 2003, so it's very yeah. fresh in people's mind. And it's we're about downtown. me. So then like the artist has this epiphany of how like you can't just summarize 9-11 in one thing, but it's got to be a mosaic of the voices of all the different people who were affected. So then the, the play that follows becomes this artist's Guernica, you know what yeah. I mean? And then it's just like a series of people's monologues as to like what happened to them. It was horrible, really horrible. It's one of those things that's trying to prove to you how important it is. It was so important and so healing and yeah. so absolutely not that thing at all. And, and like borderline offensive in how like head up its own ass it was. I appreciate the effort, but it reminded yeah. me a lot of um, like David Cross's joke about like days after 9-11 oh, where yeah. like everyone had to get their shitty improv troop together or else the terrorists yeah. would, would win. You know it's what I mean? like if Damien wants to rollerblade, then Damien's <laughs> going to rollerblade. Amazing. So I remember I saw that shitty play. So and that then, was the setup to improv. That was the setup. And then I saw my first improv show the night after. And I remember feeling like oh even though that play sucked i went into it confident that there was a point to it yeah. that like thought went into it and there's a reason for what i'm about to see and it just was a failure yeah and i remember feeling really nervous right before the improv show of like oh i hope i'm not going to be horribly bored i hope i'm not going to be horribly worried because they don't know what they're they don't doing. know what the point is yeah so i i went into it with kind of a sense of like distrust that this was going to be anything and then they like pulled their herald together and it was really idiotic and really funny and i was like oh great it's awesome so i find that uh really great art when people say it moved me yeah my interpretation of that is this feeling of i need to do something i saw that and i need to I don't know. I see a really great play and I go home and like draw. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What, how did that move you? The UCB show? Mm-hmm. It didn't really. It just made me feel like, oh, that was really funny. Interesting. But I, I'd so, already signed up for So a it wasn't a life epiphany. It not, was, that, not that I show. Am, I am curious. Yes, it was, oh, that was really great. Yeah. And I still then went to my first class and didn't really connect that what we were going to do in class was related at all to what the naked babies had done. Yeah. In my mind, I don't know what I expected. I thought we were going to do object work for eight weeks. <laughs> I really did. I thought it was like acting exercises and object work. I'd read, yeah. I'd read Spolin's book like three or four times. Oh, interesting. And so I thought that's what it was going to be. Yeah. Um, so then probably the first show I saw was probably Harold Knight. Mm-hmm. I saw a couple of ascots that were really funny, but at Harold Knight, I saw Optimist International and I saw Monkey Dick. And those were the two that I think that was the first time that I was like, holy shit, this yeah. is amazing. Um, and then, and then I, did, I did the same thing that every improviser does. I spent nine months at UCB every single night. Yeah. Saw everything. Yeah. And um, then my first Del Close marathon, I... I had kind of reached a point where I was like, 
feeling like, um, I, I don't know if this is really for me. Yeah. Is this, what is this like? Oh, three, Oh four. This would be Oh three. Yeah. This would be, so I started in Oh three. Yeah. My first Del Close marathon would have been that summer. So the summer of Oh four, I started like fall of Oh three. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at that marathon, I saw, um, Desiriski, which is Craig Kukowski, yeah. Bob Dassey, Rich Tellerico. And they did an hour long monocene. First monocene I ever you know, saw. I was at that Del Close marathon. Did you see that show? No. But I was still in school. Yeah. But it, for some reason, it's not weird. But knowing that we were both there, Lewis. Yeah. It no, it is. I mean, it's not weird. But there's a yeah. little bit of like, if you look at like a snapshot from back then, it's probably pretty wonderful to see like all of the different cross currents of people. Yeah. In that same room at that same time. Yeah. That was probably the first show that made me feel like, oh, improv is like art. Yeah. I, I had a, a very unique experience, which was I got cast in a a group in college. It was long form, but I had not seen it. Yeah. And I rehearsed for several months before I saw improv. And the first thing I saw was an IO Herald night followed by one of the very first TJ and Dave shows oh, that yeah. they ever did. And that was a, what? Like, this is what we're doing. How do they compare in their early shows? How does that compare to what they do now? It's hard to say because it was such it was everything. Right. It was the most amazing thing in the world. In my mind, they did more mm-hmm. uh, to oversimplify. Uh, in the, one of the first shows I saw, they were, I don't know if it was the first or second, but early, they were in a casino and they were starting the room like, Vegas, baby, yeah. And then it is them going out down the hall, down the elevator, through the gambling floor to a blackjack table, eight people at the table, dealer, cigarette girl, pit boss, uh, guy gets drunk, go to the bathroom, they beat the shit out of this guy, go back in, pick up a prostitute, long five-minute silent scene of TJ following Dave uh, as a prostitute up to the room, into the hotel room, realizing he's forgotten his wallet, mm-hmm. and she slowly says goodbye, and he's like, no, no, all with no words. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this show is everything. And, and I think I've been trying to emulate that show ever since. That's so funny, because my first TJ... TJ TJ and Dave show was probably about a year after that. Yeah. And my first experience of them, they sat on a park bench for an hour. Yeah. They played two characters. Maybe a third character showed up at one point, but they didn't get off that park bench. And I think I've been trying to live out that (laughs) show ever since. If you want to see those shows, Trike is Saturdays at night. Cornhill Cornhill Andrews. Some Sunday nights. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So how did you find... Armando, what was that transition like in the, and the, I'm, I'm always, I keep hearing about it, but I still feel like there's gaps in this finding Armando that time when he didn't between Pitt and Magnet yeah. in the opening of the theater. I had just, I was in like level two or level three at UCB and I read, um, I fell in love with improv immediately. I became, I became like a devotee of improv within half an hour of class. Yeah. And the first thing I did was run out to the bookstore and buy everything I could possibly buy so i had this like flurry of like reading yeah every single thing on the market about him i have been to your room um, on uh where you grew up yeah in staten island and there are a lot of books a lot and and that's ballooned since you visited that place yeah i bet um so i read this book called uh um the art of chicago improv by rob kozlowski mm-hmm. and uh, there's a chapter in there about io and and the armando diaz theatrical experience and hootenanny is, is written about in there. 
And uh, so I talked a little bit about that and, and had mentioned that like after Armando himself stopped doing the show, other people would step in to be the Armando and a whole generation of improvisers now have this legendary figure many of whom don't even realize there is an Armando Diaz. They I thought that it was like a joke. Name. I didn't know that till I was in my first UCB class and someone said Armando Diaz opened a theater. Yeah. And I said, that's a person? Yeah. So I knew that he was a guy with a name and I knew that he had stature and I knew that he was like kind of like a legend, like Batman. Like people weren't yeah. sure whether he was real or not. <laughs> Incidentally, when I did I'm my first- I'm still not sure. Me neither. He is very much like Batman, actually. Yeah. You don't know where he goes when he leaves. He's got a Armando cave. Yeah. My first, the first student ID card I got at UCB mm-hmm. um, had a picture of Dell, you know, on the top of it. And I remember looking at that and thinking, hilarious. They took that random guy from the Untouchables and ironically put his face on a card. <laughs> oh, these nuts at the UCB, man. Nothing sacred. I, I'm willing to bet you are you are part of a very small group of people who remember that, that reaction. Well, what's interesting, you know what I'm talking about, that scene yeah. in the Untouchables? Yeah. What's interesting is like, as soon as I saw that picture of Dell on the card, I was like, oh, the guy from The Untouchables. It's interesting that he leaves that indelible mark on that movie because he's in it for 10 seconds. I had seen it once forever ago, so I had to go back and see it because I heard he was in that. But the, he's in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. And I had seen that a million times. Yes. And when I found out he was in it, it still took me a minute to go, wait, which one is it, he? Because you, you just look, think of Ben Stein. Yes. He's, he, ben yeah. Stein runs away with it. Yeah. Dale is actually pretty forgettable in that. He, he's a lot more memorable in the blog. But if you look at the scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, yeah. if you look at the blackboard, he's teaching a lesson on the Herald on the blackboard. Yeah. That's amazing. It's pretty cool. That's, that's, a, that's the, a 1986 Herald, too. So that's a very different Herald than what we're used that, to. That, I remember I found that out, and it was just like, I felt betrayed. Yeah. I was like, it was in front of me the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so, so, um, so I'd like known Armando as a name. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, the, there was still like Armando's name was not very highly regarded at UCB when I was a student there. Uh-huh. Um, it, it was still kind of a thing of like coaches that you were working with would kind of whisper to you of like, "Hey, if you're really serious about this, you should like find Armando." Yeah. Um, but he 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 was still like not in great standing. The the yeah. whole pit stuff was still, I think, pretty like yeah, pretty present for people. So there's a guy in uh, in my level two or level three class who had like found out that Armando was in the city and was teaching classes at the low low price of ninety nine bucks for an eight week class. Mm-hmm. So we like found him and he was doing stuff at Cap Twenty One. Yeah, my first class with him was back to basics, which was hilarious because I I just started level three. <laughs> I figured why not? So I was doing it's Michael Delaney's level too three. Early to go back to basics. It wasn't. I did Delaney's level three and Armando's back to basics simultaneously, and. Um, Never looked back. I, 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 my feeling of respect for Armando and connection to him was immediate. Yeah. I, I remember, and he barely said anything in that class, barely yeah. talked. It, it was like a very casual feeling thing. You did a bunch of scenes, and then he would give like one note, and yeah. that would kind of be it. But I remember like walking away from that class feeling like, man, I'm getting it from the horse's mouth. And it wasn't just his reputation either. It, it yeah. was like, there was a distinctly f- different feeling in his class. There was, there was like a, a sense of like simplicity to it. Yeah, that, that, my impression right away was, I was so used to people explaining every, every variation. Yes. And I know that's something I do and I wish that I didn't. 
where I give a note and I'm immediately interpreting how you're going to misinterpret that note. Mm-hmm. And so I give a correcting note and mm-hmm. then another one and you haven't even asked. But right off the bat, it was the, he's not doing anything. And then, and then coming to that realization that like, oh, he's getting out of our way. Yes. And then just going here, I know that there's a lot of things that we could do better, but here is the one thing for you to focus on that will make the most, do the most good. He, he like um, trusts your own natural intelligence will guide you if it's not lurking in fear of doing it wrong. That was like my takeaway from his class was mm-hmm. like, I'm getting so many notes from everybody. Every coach is demonstrating to me, and I had some good coaches, but like everybody's just like earning their money. Yeah. They're working hard to coach. Yeah. And so on the one hand, you feel like, oh, this is great. I'm getting my money's worth by getting all these notes. But on the other hand, I'm also so reliant on people's notes. And I feel, I'm so acutely aware of how little I understand anything and how not good at this I am. Yeah. And when I started working with Armando, you know, it really was this feeling of like, um, you know, you're smart, trust yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, don't play this game because you have to play it because you're inspired to don't, jump on the first weird thing because it's the first weird thing. Yeah. It should speak to you. And if it doesn't speak to you, it's fine. Like yeah. just be in this scene. You, you know what you're doing. And so there was kind of a feeling like of takes like, the, takes the pressure off. Very much. So it, the answer is waiting. And it's a thing of like playing in abundance versus playing in scarcity. Yeah. It's waiting. It's already there. It just is going to take a little time for you to figure it out, but you'll figure it out. Yeah. And, and you don't have to change yourself. This is at least the early level classes, right? Yeah. You don't have to be someone who you're not. You don't have to find a, a comedy voice that's not your comedy voice. You just got to be you. And, and, and once you find it, you'll know it. And then once you know it, do more of it. Yeah. So like his classes to me felt extremely liberating. And the, the first time you get an Armando laugh feels like a million bucks. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it carries with it. It does. Weight. And I learned a lot uh, studying with him and then like learning to teach from him you realize how much of his teaching he does by laughing at stuff. Oh yeah. He, he, his laugh teaches you a lot more than the notes he gives. You know, I've had, I had some teachers that were that I'm here. I may not be thinking this, but I'm here to prove to all of you how smart I am. Absolutely. And so they'd create a cold room Yeah. and then no one takes risks. Yes. And that was another huge thing I realized with Armando is he's creating a place where it's safe to fail. Yes. Armando tends to the environment. Mm-hmm. He he creates an environment that's that allows you to be yourself. Yeah, and then you make your own discoveries. And then when you do it really well, then he'll point out what just happened, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. Whereas like, yeah, I definitely had that experience too. It's almost like people are going out of their way to create a hostile feeling room to make you feel small and terrible. Yeah, and then they just lecture you for an hour. And there's nothing worse than feeling like. I need to not do the wrong thing yes. versus the, what, here's the thing I'm going to do. Yes. Not doing something is not doing something. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm myself as a teacher. I'm very lecture heavy. I do a lot of lecturing. Uh, it's something I'm sensitive to and I try not to, but you and me both. Yeah. But I, I also tr- try to lecture after having first created an environment that people feel very secure in. Uh-huh, yeah. And like I found out when I first started teaching, I, I tried to copy Armando's like approach. Yeah. The more I tried to be like Armando, the worse I was as a teacher. Yeah. Once I just kind of let myself be 
talkative and and give lectures and shit. And it's like I'm. It's just how I'm going to do it. You figure it out. And I think I, I, this continues to be, I think, to the great credit of the magnet, at least for us. It was the here's what you need to teach, and um, you you do it the way that that works. Yes. for you. Yes, and like our level threes. I've talked about a lot. Yes, where I encourage people. Like take both those level threes because they're gonna get you to the same place in in dramatically different ways. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so tell me about in in that time. So you're you're taking these classes with Armando. People have this 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 sense of excitement. Like this is new. This feels like an underground secret thing mm-hmm. that people are whispering about. Um, to that next point, which is the I. Did you hear? Like they got a space. They're opening a theater. What was that like? And how was that revealed to the? I don't remember. Um, what was the community like? Because there's not a place for people to be necessarily. No. How aware of you? How aware were you of other people in this system? Relatively aware, because um, once I found Armando, I just started doing every class with him I could, and yeah. and so for me, the turning point was slow comedy. He did a four week slow comedy class that had four weeks of shows at the end of it. Yeah. And I just did that class four times in a row. So I did 16 weeks of shows. Yeah. And uh, he was renting out Juvie Hall. I don't know if you remember that yeah. place. I've, I've never been there, but no. you heard about it. Basement of the Jane Frankel Theater on Bond Street. What? I did a Fringe Festival Saxon Dixon show at the Gene Frankel Theater. There you go. Were you upstairs or downstairs? I was upstairs. Okay. So I've been above okay. Juvie Hall. It's not a bad space. Wow. I just connected two very unexpected dots. Isn't that nice? Yeah. It's another one of those snapshot moments of like, oh yeah, I have, my life has flowed there. This is why I'm asking these questions. This is totally off topic, but every now and again, this is like very, um, uh, 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 give yourself a hug kind of thing. But every now and again, the thought will occur to me. I'll be like walking down the street and, and, and the thought will occur to me of like, oh my God, we're all here. Right now, together, you know what I mean. Like yeah. the whole force of history has conspired that we are both sharing the same moment together, and then I'll move past it. But it's like yeah. oh, it's kind of an exciting thing. We belong to the same wave of history. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so there, there was. So we were doing shows Thursday nights. Our shows were like eleven thirty on Thursday nights or something down in the village, mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, before our show would be Jenny, which was an event day show that Armando had put together. And Alex Marino was on that. Yeah. Justin Aiken, I want to say, was on that. Um, uh, Sarah Schaefer was on that. A whole bunch of people. And that was kind of like Armando's indie team. That mm-hmm. was Those were people who came through his event day class, but then he like put his chips on them to play. Yeah. So like we were aware of them, they were aware of us, and then Slancha was the bar down, down on the Bowery that you would go to after shows. Yeah. So there was like a sense of like Armando's people. Yeah. It was whoever was hanging around at Slancha. Yeah. And I remember there was like um, somebody threw like a, an event at a bar that was about like raising money for Armando to like open a space. This was like a long, long time ago. And I seem to remember Aziz Ansari did stand up as like part of that. Yeah. And and I went and Megan and Charlie and Corey Grimes, we, we all went. And it was a really small thing. I think they raised enough money for Armando to like buy beer for everybody or something. And so like it turned out to be nothing. But then like totally unrelated, shortly after that, we found out from someone... I probably found out from like Alex or Louis Perlman or something yeah. that Armando had found a 
had found a place. Yeah. And um, I was incredible. I remember being outside 7-Eleven on Sun Island with Charlie Woodcroft and Corey Grimes and us being super jazzed about it and just talking about how, like, that's what we'll be from now on. That's Yeah. And, and that has and been true. And it turned out to be true. For uh, 10, 11 years. Yeah. And I showed up. Uh, it was still a Thai factory when I showed up. I showed up and met Alex Marino and Louis Perlman. And then uh, we started like painting and tearing shit out of it. Do you remember the first uh, thing you ever performed in that space? No. I'm trying to think if I could answer that question for myself. No. The... Um, it must have been a class show for me. Yeah, had to be. Yeah. I don't remember. Well, that seems like a perfect place to move into our uh, second segment of the section. Oh, boy. Okay, are you ready for this? Yes. Uh, this is something that's brand new. Oh, how many have you done this for like four podcasts? I've done like four or five times now. All right, well, this is five or six. Great. Uh, get to know your hotspot. So uh, how this works, let me explain this to you, Lewis. Great. How this works is I'm going to give you a suggestion, and uh, you're going to let it inspire you to start talking uh, through a personal monologue from your real life. And at any point during that monologue, I can and will interrupt to relate it to my personal experience through my personal monologue. And uh, you can take it back at any time. And we're going to do this for... Is it two or five minutes? I don't know. As long as it feels... A certain amount of time. Fabulous. All right. Lewis, your suggestion is... Oh, boy. Are you ready for this? Yeah. VHS. Oh, VHS. Um, the first thing that brings to my mind is... Uh, um, I guess... My dad taping old movies off of PBS, PBS um, late at night. So I remember having, I used to have a pretty strong movie collection because my dad was like an old film buff. And, and so like I kind of grew up with that. And we had like a whole bunch of tapes early on that were like taped off TV and, and like the recording like wasn't exactly, like it would cut out at weird times or like... Yeah. Um, like that whole thing. When my grandmother passed away, when both my grandparents passed uh, passed away, and we were going through all their stuff, uh, I got only a few things, and the only few things that I wanted, which were five VHS tapes, because we lived in the same town, and my grandmother would babysit me a lot, and she would put in one of three movies, uh, Dumbo, The Ewok Adventure, and Wizard of Oz. Mm. And so I took those tapes that were all recorded off of TV, and I just recently digitized them because all the commercials and also the uh, soap opera that starts up after the recording ends uh, is so burned into my brain. I watched it and it was uh, an incredibly emotional experience. Yeah, I don't remember um, song lyrics at all. I, I don't, I, like none of that stuff stays with me, but I remember the theme song to every TV show I grew up with. It, it, it like, it's alarming how much my brain organized itself around that I stuff. recently... Uh, had a Nickelodeon commercial pop up into my head uh, that's the like psycho or when your mind goes mm-hmm. or when you've had enough of doing grown up stuff but it does something some Looney Tunes today Looney mm-hmm. Tooney Tooney uh, and I don't know where that came from but it brought me great joy I uh, I was a TV junkie for years and years and years I, um, 
I remember like really distinctly to this actually plays a lot into like my kind of current philosophy on life in general, but um like there were shows that I hated or found really discomforting. Like I remember like different strokes would bother me all the time because every other episode was a very special episode and something horrifying happened. But like I would just watch it anyway because watching something that was like really horrible to watch was way better than the alternative of not watching television. I get very uncomfortable very easily. And that's why I can't watch a lot of reality television or uh, Sasha Baron Cohen movies, even if I think it's great. It's so cringeworthy and even just awkward like daily show interviews, I have to leave the room. I don't enjoy people fucking with each other. It's I never been it. something that spoke to me. It, it's always just made me feel like, why are you being so mean to this person? This is the reason why I don't want anyone to look at me on the street. But if you've come to a theater and we all agree that we're going to pay attention to me, I couldn't be happier. I agree. I, I also, I think... Um, so, so one of the, I, I, in real life, there's a part of our brain that is constantly searching for the rules of the context of this situation. And, and what are the rules of behavior? How do I behave appropriately in this situation? And that context is constantly shifting and mutating. And I think so much of like my own source of discomfort or anxiety or not liking attention is being very, very aware that I'm not exactly sure I'm following the same rules that everybody else is. So this I'd is rather what blend makes in. you a good improviser is that you are sensitive to the social dynamic of things and you recognize behavior and can get a quick read on what it means and what it might look like. I think that's true. And I think part of what's fun about improvising is that that uncertainty is cut out because you define it quickly and you fuck around from within that context. So whereas in real life, I'm constantly afraid uh, that I'm doing wrong in improv. I'm constantly proud that I'm doing wrong. And with that, we end personal monologue hotspot. That was lovely on, on an off topic thing. So if you've ever done my class, monologue hotspot is like, a pretty big feature of my class. I do it all the time. I yeah. love it. I, I set it up as my favorite game in improv, and I mean it. Yeah. I taught a class one time. I don't remember the class, but I remember Chris Duane was in it. It's already great It's class. already great. We were off for a week for like a holiday or something, yeah. and I found out afterwards that the entire class got together anyway, went to Central Park, and played Monologue Hotspot together for two <laughs> hours. Isn't that great? It's, it's so wonderful about improv. It's... And why people connect so quickly, it's the, we're all afraid, and the first thing we're going to do is be vulnerable in front of each other, yeah. and, and, not, and, and then you're taken care of. And that creates intimacy yes, and it, trust. It, you, you practice intimacy in improv. Yeah. It, you can be a jerk in improv, and you can be angry and, and negative in ways that you can't comfortably exercise in real life. But the other side of that is you can be intimate with people in a way that you don't comfortably exercise in real life too. And there's something really great about your, your practicing intimacy, Mm -hmm. but this is why I love monologue hotspot so much. You start to feel the value of your own thoughts, opinions, and life experiences. Yeah. Other people's attention and interest in following along lends value to your own experience and you feel more certain about who you are. Yeah. This is, I mean, more and more, uh, the more I teach, the longer I teach, I realize that all I really want is for you to say something simple that you seem to believe yeah. and tell us what you see that we don't see. Agreed. I don't need you to be clever, but if I just, I just need it to, to seem 
What's the most reasonable explanation? Agreed. Um, and then anything is fascinating. Agreed. I, I find myself constantly thinking, just be obvious. Yeah. Don't stop. It, I, that moment where like a scene is going really well and then someone is like... Uh, um, Here's the twist. Oh, God. And you see it right in their eyes. You see the moment where they go up and think and then come up with like... I Like recently, comical numbers in scenes have been a real thorn in my side. <laughs> Explain. I'm trying to give an example that would make sense, but when someone is like, uh, um, you've been doing this for the last five years, when it's like, no, you did it yeah. three times. Just say three times. Don't say five yeah. years. Don't give me an exaggerated comical number. Give me the obvious number. She called me 473,000 times. No, she didn't. She called no. She called me three times this morning. Well, it's like, well, that can be true, but now that's the game of the scene. That's yes. That's absurd. That's a big thing I would find this. People don't recognize that it doesn't take much to be absurd. Yeah. And as soon as you are absurd, that is the point of interest for the audience. Yes. You, you I, can't add more random weird things. And I, I will every now and again, it, like I find it funny. Like if you were to say she called me 437,000 times, that I would actually find that acceptable because it's so specifically absurd that I'd be fine with it. Yeah. Well, it also depends where in this scene you throw that. Yes. Because if we're already dealing with the thing, then that that's like weighty and and has consequence and then you throw this in not attached to that yes. then it's a distraction every now and again i'll be in a show this happens with like rick sometimes when we're playing together where yeah. like for whatever reason it'll be like a transaction scene you know like he'll buy like a cup of coffee and a sandwich and then as the cashier i'll be like okay that'll be fourteen thousand dollars <laughs> and it's only funny if the response is okay here you go and then like you move on from it but like you got to be like really <laughs> careful with that because then if the other person makes a big deal of it, then it's like, oh, I didn't mean that to be. It's kind yeah. of a shitty improv thing, but I, I, I do it every now and again to make myself laugh because I find it funny when things are $14,000. Yeah, it's, it's when people re- respond to things as if it's absurd, but with not enough weight. Yeah. Where then it's like, wait, wait, I don't get what's normal now. It's like, right. maybe $43,000. Oh, come on. Like, that's that's too much. Right. You know, as Which, if you're going to have an honest reaction, it's, haha, very funny. Yes. How much is it actually? Yeah. Um, I think my response to that, if I buy a cup of coffee and a sandwich and the other person is like, that'll be $14,000, I think my response would be I would wait for like two seconds and then I'd be like, all right, just the coffee, please. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few quick calculations. Let me think about this for a second. His response is then, okay, well, then it's a (laughs) dollar. Sandwich is $13,999. There's always more to know. Um, All right, great. Oh, boy. Speaking of... I lost it. Speaking of food. Yeah. Oh, here we go. We're going to move on to our final segment of the show, which is called A Very Serious Scene Opposite a Jar of Pickles. And as you know, the way this works is... uh, I am going to give you a scenario via suggestion from the internet. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, as to a, a context for this scene. And you are going to then have to play this scene to this jar of pickles. Okay. This jar of pickles is a character. I will give you the context in a minute. But you must refer to the jar of pickles as jar of pickles. Okay. All right. So our, subject, our, subjection, our suggestion comes to us from... Uh, the Magnet Theater's very own Abby Russell, uh, her handle, Hello Abby, a.k.a. Dingleberry Finn. <laughs> I was told I was required to mention that. Great. Uh, so because Twitter has a character limit, I'm going to expand upon 
uh, her core idea. Okay. Because I like how detailed yours are. This jar of pickles is your six-year-old son. You have had, for his entire life, he has known your family dog, Russell's. That's the name of the dog. And uh, Russell's is very old and has been getting sick. And your son has noticed the behavior of the dog has changed recently. And, and you don't know how to explain aging and ailment. Uh, so you've been basically avoiding it by telling him little lies about what's going on with the dog to make him not worry. The dog's health, Russell's health, health has taken an unexpected turn, and you very quickly had to decide to put the dog down. You have just picked up Jar of Pickles uh, from kindergarten. Uh, You're in the minivan, and you need to have a talk with him to explain that not only is the dog dead, but those other things you told him were lies. Hal, turn the uh, radio down for her. I want to talk to you. It's about... Um, well, it's about Russell. Um, so, R- Russell... Russell passed away. Do you know what that means, Jar of Pickles? It means that Russell isn't with us anymore. All right. Do you remember Do you remember last year Jar of Pickles you asked me that question where you were before you were born? And you remember I told you I, I don't know and I asked you like <laughs> to try to remember what it was like before you were born and and you said I can't remember. Yeah. That's where Russell is now. Russell's in the can't remember place none of us know where we were before we were born and you know how Mr. Venaccia next door got really really sick remember how his knees started hurting him and then and then like he got smaller that happens to everybody and then after that happens you pass away you die and then we go to we don't know where, which I think is probably the same as we don't know where we were before we were here. So that's where Russell is now, Jar of Pickles. Also, when I told you that Russell was tired or that Russell was just played out from seeing his new friend at the dog park, that was your old man telling a fib. I lied to you. I told you something that wasn't true. And I want you to know that now because a lot of people are going to lie to you throughout your life. Um, You're going to lie to a lot of people too. People don't always tell the truth. You don't know who to trust, which is why you always have to trust yourself more than anybody else. Jar pickles. Um, I mean, trust me, please. I know I lied to you, but I also just came clean and told you that that I lied to you. A lot of other people aren't going to do that. They're going to lie and then they're not going to tell you. You're going to have to decipher that for yourself, which isn't always easy because people, you know, lie to get themselves out of trouble. But I'm not doing that with you, Jar of Pickles. I'm coming clean. I'm telling you like it is because that's the kind of person I want you to be like. Do you have any questions for me? 
I don't think he suffered. They stopped his heart before. They put him to sleep, and then they stopped his heart, so he probably didn't feel much of anything. He probably went to sleep. Yeah, yeah, that could happen to any of us. We could just go in our sleep and disappear to the place that we were at before we were born. Nobody knows. Nothing's guaranteed. Boy, oh boy. You know, why don't you turn the radio back on, Jar Pickles? This is <laughs> and scene. That is a very serious scene. Oh, God. Uh, with a jar of pickles. Take it all out of me. Wow. That, we really got into it. Yeah. The place before we were born. Yeah. Um, I was laughing during that. Uh, in between my laughs, I was realizing I'm ha- going to have this conversation yes. with right. my son. Are you prepared for that? Years. Nope. Yeah. I just listened to that and it, it didn't make me more prepared. Let me ask you a question before we go. What's your, what's your, because I've always had it in my mind that like when I have kids, yeah. I am going to try to be as honest with them as possible about everything. I, I feel that my role as a parent would be to simply provide you with information and keep you from harm and not try to fill you up with too much shit that's going to fuck with you. But what, what it, realistically, in a practical situation, now that you have two kids, what is your approach? How do you relate to them? Too hard to say yet on that department. I think that is the goal, that like, here's the info. That was very much how I remember my mom telling me about sex, which is, here's some facts. Yeah. I was like, I'm uncomfortable, but I appreciate the facts. Um, as it is now, it's just all about distracting them at the right times for the right reasons. Uh, I definitely lie to my son just so he doesn't know that TV is an option Mm -hmm. or, or whatever, but I don't really know yet. Time will see we'll tell there are, well, there are, there are certain lies I'm talking out of my butt here because yeah. I don't have kids, but there are certain lies where like a, a, a child does not yet have the ability to impulse control is not there. Yeah. And so once they discover a source of sugar, they'll just gorge themselves to death on a source of sugar. Oh yeah. So you have to kind of play the role of like the brain that they don't have. yet. Oh yeah. So, there's a lot of, they're gone. The cookies are gone. Yes. Oh, there's plenty of that lying. So like, that's a very important, useful thing. Yeah. But then there's the lying. That's just like adults cutting corners and not yeah. really wanting to be bothered with, with having to fess up to their own ignorance about something. And those are the ones that are real dangerous. My dad got away with that by always saying, well, uh, it seems to me, yeah. And then we'd have a very logical uh, uh, answer to something. And I, but I took it as, oh, he knows everything. Right. He was never lying to me. Right. But he said, it seems like this. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, more and more the older I get, the more I... Because I will immediately start answering a question assuming I have the answer. But I've at least started to go, yeah, it, it's this. Also, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to act, feel like I did. Mm-hmm. Um, God, we'll see. I mean, I'm going to lie about Santa Claus because I loved Santa Claus. You'd be cruel not to. Yeah, I'm not going to be that person. It's a game. You know what? And I found out Santa Claus wasn't real. And the next thought was, do I still get the presents? And the answer was yes. So yeah. I was like, great. Yes. I'm on board. And Santa Claus is real in the mind of a child. All it is, it is a, this is a figure that summarizes a real emotional experience that the child has. A little, I believe little kids are more in touch with, with the, uh, 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 the kind of like energy of that time of year. They feel the, the, that there's something different in the air in a mm-hmm. way that adults probably don't because we're too preoccupied with our own like responsibilities and shit. Yeah. They feel it. You have the sense of like 
to them, it's magic. So you give them a, a totemic figure to summarize that magic. Yeah. You should do that. You'd be crazy not to. I love tradition. Uh, Beth, my, my wife, gets, gets, makes fun of me because at Christmas, it's, it's all about, you know, the rules, what order you are walking down the stairs, youngest yeah. to oldest, that's how it goes. Who's turning on the lights this sure. year? And she, she immediately, she, you know, doesn't trust authority. And so she hates rules. But to me, it makes me feel safe. And it's, we get to do this thing and it's anticipation and it's, we've done it before and it's familiar. My, it's my birthday next week. And, uh, uh, today I had that, this moment of, Oh, it's my birthday, mm-hmm. you know, and you have that less and less to like, I'm excited. Yes. Uh, um, you know, I'm probably not going to do anything cause I have two kids. Um, but there's, I just remember that feeling of like birthday is coming up. Just, there's so much to be thankful for. And then I was at October birthday. So it's the season. My birthday is the beginning of October, Halloween, Thanksgiving. Eh, I like food, but it wasn't the big one. And then Christmas, winter break. It's just like, I was happy every day because there was something to look forward to. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And then January was the worst. I'm, I'm with you. I'm not that extreme about like the order of who comes down the stairs, but yeah. like it, there have to be certain, certain hallmark times where like ritual is very important. Yeah. Because like the, the, the act of, it's just the act of treating it so important that you have to follow these rules yeah. that makes it feel special. And like you, those are essential. This is what I tell myself when I find myself being bigoted towards people who are different from me, yeah. not actively, but I find like, Oh, you know what? I'm judging someone who's different from me. Yes. And that, uh, especially in not to get too political at the end of this, but the, Oh, you know what? Why do people do things different than, than me? These are traditions. Yes. These make people feel safe. You know, my brother, um, just married a, a wonderful Muslim woman, but they are, they are secular, mm-hmm. you know, but she still doesn't eat pork mm-hmm. and it's such an obvious thing but to me but the oh oh of course like that's a cultural thing you don't do it because nobody did it and you don't she doesn't necessarily believe that there's something wrong with it but we just never did so i'm not going to just change that because it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. it's it's familiar it's my home it's my culture mm-hmm. and you keep learning these lessons and they're they're important agreed and on that note, <laughs> that idea of how to better ourselves and, and trust the world around us, Louis Kornfeld, thank you so much for joining us. Thank on the you Magnet for Theater having Podcast. me, Peter. Podcast. Thank you so much. This has been the Magnet Theater Podcast. Uh, big thanks to our executive producer, Ed Herbstman, our producer, uh, Evan Ford Barden, and today's engineer who left in the middle of the recording. So I'd also like to thank myself, who's going to stop the recording. I get partial engineer credit. And I think there's more credits that'll be done by you in a pre-taped recording. I've I've already pre-taped them, so wow. we can just go we to those it. credits right now. I'm gonna say goodbye like Lewis does. All right, and we'll see you again. All right, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast.
This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.